Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Hold Hearted Eating Podcast. Dana here today for our intro, and on today's episode, we have Jenny Wienar, who joins us again to talk about some exciting breakthrough therapies in the field of mental health with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Now, quick disclaimer, of course, in addition to the disclaimer that we have in the beginning music of the show, is that ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is not meant for everybody, nor are we recommending it for anyone really without a comprehensive assessment from multiple health professionals, including your doctor, your therapist, and a specifically trained therapist for this modality. So the reason we wanted to do this episode is this is a really up and coming area of research and treatment for medication resistant depression that we've been hearing a lot more about. So we wanted to bring an expert on to ask some questions that we are sure once you all start to hear about this more, or if you've been hearing about it already, you'll most likely have those questions too. So on today's episode, we're going deep into what the heck is ketamine therapy? What is it best used for? Who is it safe for, right? What are the counterindications? What's the research saying? What's the intersection here between eating disorders and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? And what are the conditions where we might see the most amount of benefit from doing something like this? So without any further ado, let's jump right into the episode with Jenny. I'm super excited to have you on today, Jenny, and to talk about ketamine therapy. And I'd love for you to kind of start off with how your therapy practice kind of evolved into ketamine therapy. And also for those who have never heard of ketamine therapy, a little bit of a ketamine 101, if you will. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we have a bit of a a history together. I'm a therapist in based in Philadelphia. And, you know, when I started my private practice, I was focused primarily on disordered eating and body image concerns. You know, I had a weight inclusive practice, um, health at every size. And so, of course, Christina, we met through that community, which has been wonderful. And, you know, of course, if you're treating disordered eating, you're treating trauma, you're treating depression, anxiety, and other concerns. So, you know, my practice sort of incorporated all of those things. Um, And then in more recent years, I've shifted to working primarily with ketamine, which is what we're discussing today, but uh, using ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And this sort of grew out of my own personal exploration with psychedelics and uh, altered states of consciousness. And I had a few friends who are therapists on the West Coast where like they're a little bit ahead of us. And, you know, they've been working with all of these medicines for a while. And I, uh, after a few of my own experiences, I just sort of jumped on a training for ketamine assisted psychotherapy and got to experience the medicine and the power of it. And just worked to start incorporating it into my practice as soon as I felt really competent with it and like it was appropriate to do. And I've done some more training since. So for people that aren't familiar, ketamine is a legal substance. It's a controlled substance that's been used in human and veterinary medicine for decades as an anesthetic. So Ketamine is technically a dissociative anesthetic, but at sub-anesthetic doses, it has psychedelic properties and it can induce these vivid visuals and trance-like states and really take someone out of their body into sort of this other state of consciousness. This It can almost feel like this other plane of the universe, depending on the dosage and how deep someone gets. And then it eventually sort of 
usually delivers people safely back into the body, sort of safely and easily. Of course, there are difficult journeys or ones, you know, that don't feel as smooth or peaceful, but for the most part, it's this really sort of gentle return back into the body. And it allows for uh, sort of suspension of our typical way of being in ourselves, our defenses, our narratives about ourselves and the world, and allows to sort of create space for something new, for new patterns or thoughts or ways of being or ways of relating. And we can really leverage that in the therapeutic space and within the container of the therapeutic relationship to really lubricate and catalyze the work that's happening and sort of get things going where maybe there was stuckness before. So um, that's just sort of like, like a basic yeah, idea of what the medicine does. Yeah, really helpful. Thank you for that overview. So with all of that, I'm sure when you first started kind of going into this uh, field and then other colleagues on the East Coast, not the West Coast, were like, excuse me, what do you, <laughs> what are you doing? So can you talk about some of the most common um, misconceptions or myths about ketamine therapy? Absolutely. And I de definitely, you know, a lot of people are really excited about it, but a lot of people are skeptical and I've had even some sort of like animosity towards it, which I understand it's a new uh, thing, which can always be scary, especially after the opioid epidemic and a lot of people's fears around using a controlled substance. So that is one of the biggest concerns is ketamine has a reputation as a party drug. It's used in you know clubs and rave settings, which personally I cannot fathom using it in that way, but uh, but people do, and uh, so there's you know a concern that people are going to get addicted, um, and that's certainly understandable. And what I try to sort of explain to people is that ketamine is not physiologically addictive in the same way that opioids are, you know, there isn't this intense withdrawal that um, sort of perpetuates use. The way ketamine can be addictive is if someone gets addicted just to the experience of sort of leaving the body, leaving their cares behind, and they're not doing sort of the closed loop of the therapeutic work on the back end and the front end to really make it um a you know a healing experience and really a contained experience so when it's contained within the therapeutic relationship and there's a prescribing physician involved and we're monitoring really closely we just don't see that kind of dependence emerge um because it's actually it's like a lot of work people are coming in and doing a lot of work so that's definitely one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, and I, I think just in general, yeah, with anything sort of new and shiny, you know, psychedelics in general are getting this reputation as like game changers, like fix it, you know, silver bullet, you know, can just transform everything. And they are really promising, really exciting. There's amazing research happening um, on like MDMA for PTSD, for example, just mind-blowing results. But again, no, the medicine itself is not just, it doesn't just fix you. And your life might not look drastically different on the other side of treatment, but there might be these really subtle shifts that are really profound in terms of the internal work you're doing. It might, for some people, there are more dramatic changes, but um Sometimes it can be slow and steady and subtle, but as we know, you know, as healthcare providers, sometimes moving that needle the smallest bit is the difference between life or death. There's something, you know, it's much more profound than than you might think. So that I would say is the other misconception, sort of both ends that either these are going to fix everything or this is the next, you know, addiction crisis. So. That makes sense that I could see how people could see it on both ends, right? Like, because on the one hand, like you could even argue there's a lot of behaviors that we do that 
disassociate us that that we can become kind of attached to. And we see that a lot in eating disorders and disordered eating treatment, right? And like, so I feel like on the one hand, you could even argue, well, you know, at least this is productive, you know, in some ways and moving them in like a harm reduction type of, you know, progression. Not saying that like becoming addicted to ketamine is like a productive movement. Sure. But that's not what I'm saying, everybody. <laughs> but I mean, like, I think one of the things that I think is important that people need to remember is that there's the word assisted in there. It's ketamine assisted psychotherapy. It's not ketamine only and it's not psychotherapy only it's ketamine assisted psychotherapy which i think is a really important distinction for people to remember that like we're not just saying out and like hey go out and do some mdma and then like your ptsd is going to be healed right. it's like no not exactly <laughs> if that was but the case <laughs> everybody who goes to raves wouldn't have any trauma anymore <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah right but i think it's important for people to remember that like you said there's a lot of work included here in all of these things and being able to one of the one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I liked that I think I'd like for you to explore more with us is how it can when you're doing the work together with the ketamine and the psychotherapy as at the same time and in conjunction to it you said you're able to kind of in some ways step away from your own internal narratives that you can get attached to could you explain that a little bit more about how those two things can kind of open up the healing process and expand it a little bit more yeah absolutely and i just want to clarify one thing there actually there is another way of working with ketamine that is just using IV infusions. And that's what a lot of people are familiar with because that's been around a little bit longer than this integrated model that I'll talk about. But with the IV infusions, typically that's not paired with psychotherapy in this comprehensive way. That's starting to change a little bit, but traditionally that's been more just sort of a biological intervention for depression, which or, or for chronic pain. Um, and in certain cases, I, you know, that might be appropriate, but uh, they, we sort of find that those effects wear off, the antidepressant effects wear off if we're not really intentionally working with it. So, right. So what that looks like, you know, there's this dissociative effect of the medicine, but it's sort of different than are, you know, what we think of as like everyday dissociation or dissociation within mental health. And in the ketamine space, you'll often hear people say it's sort of a, a dissociation from the dissociation. And so it really sort of takes you into this other state of consciousness within yourself. It's like tuning you to a new frequency that you didn't know was there. And there might be visuals and shapes and colors, but often there's sort of some type of insight or awareness that comes through in that space as well. A lot of people describe a shift in perspective, you know, this just you're used to seeing things from this one way. And now, you know, in the journey, it might be that you're seeing yourself from outer space and seeing how like small and sort of insignificant in some ways you are like, but people will say in a good way, like, I realize nothing matters, but in in a good way. And that's really profound when you're, you know, talking to someone who's maybe tends to ruminate or stress or worry and, um, or someone with an eating disorder who's really fixated, right? Zoomed in on numbers, calories, whatever it is, um, to sort of get this awareness, this perspective that like, wow, that stuff's really insignificant in the scheme of things and in my like place in the universe. And, you know, we can intellectually talk about that in therapy, right? Like, how much does that really matter? What would it be like if that didn't matter to you? But to get that firsthand experience of feeling in, you know, your soma and your psyche, what it's like to exist free from that obsession and just like sort of this sense of freedom that now opens the door in a new way to the possibility of accessing that more in your ordinary state of consciousness. So 
after the medicine, you know, so when I work with someone, we do an intake, we do several preparation sessions, they have an intake with the doctor, then we move into the first medicine session. Within a day or two of the medicine session, I want to meet with the person because they're still sort of in this expanded state a little bit. And uh, that's a beautiful time to sort of pull out more, extrapolate more on those insights that came through and maybe even try out like one thing behaviorally. You know, people tend to notice that they feel a little more motivated to do something or something they've been resisting doing just comes a little easier. So again, especially when working with eating disorders, we know how significant like that one thing can be. And that if you do it once, you're more likely to be able to do it again. And so we can really expand on that. I think that's one of the things that I notice a lot with my eating disorder clients a lot is that once we start, it's like they are able to have that first time experience of like the world kept spinning even though I had this thing to eat or I changed something in my routine or I opened up to having one more snack during the day or I worked on not, you know, um, I paused for a moment while I was eating and I said, this food's always available to me. Like all the different things that happen, those one little moments, that little shift, it's like kind of like it opens up their mind to being, to realizing the world kept spinning mm-hmm. and nothing catastrophic happened, even though prior to today, prior to that moment of ever trying it, it felt like if I did do this, something huge and catastrophic would happen as a result. And I think what like, it sounds like what you're describing is that experience with like, a really well facilitated way of having this moment in a protected environment for them to feel that for the first time to then open up and say, Hey, the world keeps spinning. Like these things are, are going to be okay. It's okay for me to explore these parts that I maybe have held on to really tightly for a really long time. And I think that to me, when I, I first heard about ketamine therapy through a show younger <laughs> when they talked about microdosing and I was like, well, this is cool. Uh, but then I, I learned about it more because clients of mine started coming to me having already done it mm. and explained to me kind of their experience and what they were going through. And I saw clients of mine come to me and say, hey, I'm going to be starting ketamine therapy i'm doing this experience i'm going to this facility for you know a long weekend experience i think it's probably the ivs it's probably what they were doing and they had a therapist my therapist has been including me in this and all the different things and um and then i've seen them come back from that experience and continuing with the therapy and the ketamine and seeing them, like their rumination and their anxiety, they're starting to be able to be less scared to prepare food in their kitchen. Like they're able to implement a lot of the things that we had had a lot of hesitation around. And we had to talk about, you know, why is it challenging for you to start this? What barriers are coming up for you and why this is hard? And it was almost like, and I think they would probably say the same thing too. It was kind of like, what? Like how did, like, how did I feel the ability to be able to kind of take what was being said and felt my capacity increase. Not necessarily that everything was resolved, right? But my capacity to start to implement that motive, that internal intrinsic motivation to kind of just say like, it's not as scary as it seems to step forward is kind of amazing. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us, like we've talked a lot about how cool this is, how amazing it is, the benefits of it, the different places. Um, could you explain a little bit maybe who this would be best for? Um, who is it safe to do? Because it might not be safe for anybody and everybody. And what kind of contraindications that you've seen in practice and who like who could this really be for? And maybe who is this not so much for? Yeah, absolutely. Ketamine really shines for treatment-resistant depression. That's sort of its number one, um, you know, presenting problem that it that it really works well with. And treatment-resistant depression is a lot of depression. That's, I think, by definition, depression that's failed to respond to two interventions, which 
you know, medication and therapy, like how many people have tried those at, to no avail. And so, uh, you know, someone who's just essentially, you know, depression of, of most flavors, it works well with including postpartum depression. There's research being done around sort of when it can be used based on um, someone's breastfeeding, et cetera. Um, anxiety and OCD, it has sort of mixed results with, but um, it's that those aren't generally rule outs. Um, it's just sort of less, you know, for some people it's effective for some people it's less. So, uh, someone with a history of mania or psychosis, it would probably be a rule out mania. It depends a little bit, you know, if someone has sort of had hypomanic sort of lower level, you know, episodes of mania and maybe not very recently, you know, we could sort of proceed with caution, but if someone has, um, you know, really serious bipolar disorder or psychosis of some kind, which is different, but um, those are two things that would probably not, you know, not be indicated. There are a couple medical, just physical medical rule outs, like if someone has uncontrolled high blood pressure, because uh, ketamine does slightly raise blood pressure, as long as it's controlled, you know, during the session, we'll take blood pressure before and after there's the doctor there. So again, those are things we just sort of need to know about and plan around. Um, yeah, those would be some of the things, but generally speaking, someone who's feeling stuck in their therapy in some way can typically benefit from it, like can get some insight or some uh, forward motion, I would say. Um, even a history of addiction is not necessarily a rule out ketamine in the, you know, with the right provider can be effective in someone's treatment for addiction to something else. It's not a standalone treatment for that, but, uh, it can support that. Cause again, if someone's working with addiction, they're probably working with trauma and depression and things like that. So ketamine can work at sort of the underlying, you know, um, sort of depressive tendencies or sort of ruminative tendencies. Suicidal ideation is another big thing. I can't tell you the number of people who I've worked with who said, you know, I didn't even realize that I was sort of just living with suicidal ideation until it was lifted during this treatment. Um, and so that's something that's been really interesting and profound as well. Yeah, what an amazing feeling. <laughs> to have that code. It sounds like when you're using this type of therapy in conjunction with a whole lot of other modalities, right? It sounds like the the barriers that people have towards, let's say in eating disorder treatment, like eating a certain thing, eating at all, trying to listen to hunger cues, you know, other things like that. It seems like those barriers and those walls that may have been, you know, hundreds of feet high are now a little bit more malleable when using these kinds of therapies. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and then I had a question. You kind of mentioned this offhand, but so say someone does have, you know, a medical condition that they're monitoring. When they're doing the therapy, is it both the therapist and the doctor in the room at the same time? Or is it kind of you're, as the patient, you're going back and forth between the two or multiple practitioners? That's a great question. Um, in the ketamine session, it's really just me. You know, um, the doctor is on site and she'll check blood pressure before we get started and, and afterwards. Um if there was something else she needed to monitor, you know, she would do that as well, but she's not in the room with us. If someone's getting an IV infusion, that's a little bit more of a medical setting. There's probably a nurse in and out um, for something like that. If someone had something that needed to be checked, you know, during the session, in my setup, you know, the doctor I work with certainly could do that. Every practice is different. So there are therapists who work only with the, so we work with sublingual lozenges and intramuscular injection. There are people that work only with the lozenges. And so they don't even really need the doctor on site technically, because the doctor is prescribing the medicine to the patient and just taking it in the presence of the therapist. 
versus the injection, obviously the doctor has to give. So um, yeah, people are working with it in all different ways, but Again, ketamine just has a really high safety profile because if you think about it, it's just used every day, like in surgeries. So it you don't have to come off most medications to work with it, which is unique in the world of psychedelics as well. So really um something else that I was kind of thinking about as you were talking about this was that the idea of when you're going through this for the first time, right? Or hearing about, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to inject this thing into my into my muscle or I'm going to take this lozenge. Um, getting some flashbacks to college. <laughs> 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 um, not the same thing. Not even promoting it. It's the same thing, but there is a little bit of a thing. How do you then like as the therapist and as the client who's going through this thoughtfully and methodically and therapeutically um, and not like, hey, we're going to go have a party here, you know. Um, My thing is, is one, how do you help, especially with a history of trauma? A lot of these clients have trauma. How do you then create that felt safety with you when someone's new to this and how can as a client you talk to someone a practitioner if you want to explore this how do you find the right practitioner for you how do you know whether or not they're going to set up the right kind of felt safety for you in those moments because I would imagine um, that could really lead you down like a not so great uh, experience and so in order to make sure that you're getting what you're wanting out of this experience and to work through it how do you then help your clients kind of under or help anybody understand how do you select someone how do you know whether or not you're feeling comfortable in the space that felt safety that you would that I would imagine you would have to have in order to go down this road It's so true. It really directly impacts your experience on the medicine, how safe you feel, which is why I do a really extensive onboarding process. You know, I start with just a consult call with someone. Then we, if we agree to move forward, we do the intake, at least two, ideally more, but at least two preparation sessions, which are just like regular therapy sessions. But in which I'm getting more history and also telling the client everything they need to know, you know, everything they need to expect in the first medicine session. Um, And then they have this medical intake. And then eventually we move into the, the cap sessions. And I think when people are, you know, first talking to me, they kind of bristle at the idea of all of these sessions first. People just want to jump to the medicine. They've heard about it. They want to try it. By the time we get there or they've done the first one, everyone's like, I'm so glad we had all of those intro sessions. I feel so safe and comfortable. In those sessions, we're talking about issues of touch, right? I mean, there are times where, first of all, I might just need to get someone's attention. They'll have headphones on and an eye mask on. And so is it okay if I put my hand on your shoulder? Um, If not, here's how we're going to work around that. Also just, you know, the use of therapeutic touch, which can be really healing, but we have to talk about all of that beforehand, Um, letting them know just again, what to expect. Cause a lot of times once someone's in there, if something's uncomfortable, they're like, am I allowed to say something? Am I supposed to say something? And so I really try to work with people around, this is an opportunity to use your voice and to ask for what you need, but that takes time and preparation and creating that container where someone feels safe to do so. So I would say if you're vetting people ask about their process, you know, and if they're just kind of quickly writing you a prescription to sort of jump to do it pretty quickly, that might sound great. It might save you some money, which is a big, of course, a big issue with this treatment is the cost and issues of access. But is that really going to serve you? Like you really need to know who you're working with and feel comfortable leading into that medicine session. So yeah. How much information are they giving you about preparation and what is their process for integration afterwards? These sessions we do sort of after the medicine, 
um, just asking lots of questions and they should be willing to tell you everything about the process so that you feel really informed and can consent. You know, that would be number one. Sorry, it took me a second to get my, my computer to unmute. No, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like it would make such a big difference for each person to not know what's going into it. And I think, like you said, the in, like true informed consent about what's going to be going on, how things are going to be go, how things are going to be working, would be so important for someone to be well informed, <laughs> well informed about, and being able to kind of like mentally prepare themselves for what that could be like. Because I could imagine. I mean, there's a big difference between YOLO and like your young formative years, Dana's laughing at me, versus like, I'm going to, like, I am thoughtful. I know what's going on. I'm like electing to do this. There's a lot of much, much more like mature, not like much more mature, all the different things that go along with that, that then like would make you more hesitant to like kind of going down this road or could set you up for if you did have a degree of, oh God, is this the right move? Or like, is this okay? That that could lead you to something like a negative experience. And I just wonder for, have you had a moment where or an experience when anyone had a a negative experience in the moment and how does that kind of get handled into the degree that it's managed? So it, how that how that works exactly yeah i've been fortunate to not have had any truly adverse effects during the session like a you know something really extreme or a crisis and i think part of that is cuz i i do this sort of slow build up we work really carefully with the dosage and starting people really low and figuring out their sensitivity to the medicine um the most challenging thing that I come across is people who have what we call low sensitivity, or you can think of it as a high tolerance where they're not getting very far. And typically that is because, I mean, you know, there is of course a physiological component. People are just more or less sensitive. They metabolize it differently. Um, but there's really this phenomenon of, you know, certain parts of the internal system that are scared or don't want to let go or uh, are fighting sort of, you know, moving out of the body and out of this state of consciousness. And that's a clinical issue. That's something we want to work on. And so if, you know, if that's arising, then I know that that's something to work on in the treatment. And we can work a little bit on, you know, with increasing the dosage or something, but we don't want to just blast through that by sort of giving someone a really high dose. We want to go in and find these parts that, you know, are scared to let go or that don't trust or whatever it is, or that hold trauma and work with them to feel safe and to sort of open up the internal system. So that's the biggest challenge really that I've come up against. Um, it's something I've experienced myself and have to work with myself with psychedelics. And um, I think also, yeah, if someone, if a provider is just sort of going higher and higher in dosage, that's a little bit of a red flag, like that maybe there's just more internal work that needs to be done there. And also a lot of expectation setting, you know, around, what this should be and, and all of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you mentioned before that there's a lot of promising research that's been coming out about this, right? So can we do a little bit more of a deep dive into like, what is the research? You know, what are the different conditions that are being researched? And, you know, what is it saying? And what does that say for you as a professional that's working in this field going forward? Yeah, so... I am not a huge research buff myself. I will admit I see a lot of the headlines. A lot of my colleagues are sharing <laughs> them, but I don't do like a, a deep dive into a lot of studies, but uh, certainly treatment resistant depression. There's a lot of research happening postpartum depression. There is research happening on ketamine and eating disorders. Um, I know there's kind of a lot of other 
permutations of those happening, but those are just sort of off the top of my head, what I'm aware of. And it's all looking really promising, um, you know, and they're in, they're very specific protocols and things that are not necessarily exactly how most of us practice in real life. You know, a lot of the research is done on these really intensive protocols of like two sessions a week for three weeks or something. And that in most cases, that's really not indicated. I think they also are typically using lower doses in that case, but still that for most people, that's not practical and just not really available. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's a a huge commitment of time and, and energy and all that, but yeah, there's just, there's a lot that's coming out. That's, that's really exciting. Um, and I mentioned MDMA before, which, you know, is not yet legal, but is in, I think at this point, phase three of clinical trials and just having remarkable results, like the the majority of people receiving that treatment who had a clinical diagnosis of PTSD no longer meet criteria for PTSD after that treatment. And that's just unheard of almost for, you know, for PTSD. It's just, there's no other modality that can really show that percentage of recovery. So, but again, that's a that's a big expensive treatment. And so they're going to have to really be, there's a lot of work to be done on making this stuff accessible. So it's going to be a while before it's really mainstream and available to people who need it. Um, But there are people working on that too. I know it's a big criticism of this stuff, just how expensive it is. And we know we're working on it and, um, you know, (laughs) but it's an issue of time and, these medicines, ketamine is probably the shortest acting psychedelic and my sessions are three hours long. Um, the medicine itself doesn't last three hours, but we're doing all this work around it. So MDMA sessions are like eight hours and you have multiple providers. And, um, so obviously there's a lot of work that needs to be done on making that available to people, but it's happening. It's in the works. So That's really exciting to think that some of these things are kind of coming out and there's a lot of promising research around it too. And I imagine that there's going to be, even if it does get finally like approval, there's going to be so much work on getting like the, like people aware of it and also comfortable with it. Like if I were to like think to myself like, oh, I'm going to someone, like it would be hard as a practitioner to recommend it at first, right? And be like, oh yeah, maybe you should look into this. It's like, oh yeah, (laughs) like it just feels like a really big thing to, you know, to recommend. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that we're kind of talking about this a little bit more and having you on and learning more about it and how thoughtful, methodical, researched backed this is because I think a lot of people hear it and are like, what are these hippies up to? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's like, you know, it's not that at all. And I think it's really important. And I feel like as a practitioner, I've seen how effective and amazing this has been for some of my clients. And I think that's what kind of like led me to be like, well, we need to talk about this because this is a really awesome, um, modality that if it's available to you if it's within your financial ability and your location like where you are and you're feeling like you said stuck this could be really an important therapeutic piece that could really help you in a really big way and ultimately we're always looking to help everybody and get people to where they where they want to be and each person's journey is very different so it's not like we're sitting here saying like this is for everybody like we're clearly not saying that when have we ever said that about anything (laughs) (laughs) i know right but i do have a question for you jenny i have a question about eating disorders and like your history with um weight inclusive care and all that kind of stuff how are you handling that in this field? It's a really good question. Um, because yeah, once you step outside of the the weight inclusive haze bubble, right, and you're working with other medical professionals, definitely uh it's a different, it's a different vibe. Um you know, I think what's beautiful is that on the flip side of that, people in the psychedelic space and especially, you know, a lot of providers in that space are doing their own work with psychedelics and with various medicines. And 
they tend to be more, in my experience, open-minded than people in sort of the haze space who, you know, are like, not that I want haze people to be more open-minded about, you know, being not weight inclusive, you know, uh-huh. you understand what I'm saying, but that yeah. in the haze world, like there's such this sort of narrow focus and like, this is the only way. And uh, I think people in that world are more open to just like incorporating different viewpoints. And so I have brought it up on like a big, there's a big list serve I'm part of, of hundreds of providers in the ketamine space, um, might even be thousands at this point. And I've asked, like, can we stop using the word obesity or referring to obese clients and uh, challenging, you know, people who have conflated sort of, you know, that BMI will automatically correlate to someone's dosage, because we find that it just, it doesn't necessarily. Um, And I've never been met with any hostility. You know, people might not agree, but that it, it's sort of just accepted that there are like different ways of looking at things. Um, and so that's been really interesting, but I'm lucky to work with a prescribing physician who's weight inclusive and practices from a health at every size perspective. And so I don't know that I could do it if I didn't have that because um, that might just really change, change our relationship and how we were talking to clients. So yeah, I just try to chip away and, you know, I'm someone in a smaller body. So obviously there's some privilege there and that I, it's not sort of personal when I hear people using that language and I recognize that, but, you know, I also, yeah, I have a history of disordered eating. And so I have to really resource myself and ground myself, but also just try to understand, you know, that these people have been trained in a certain setting and they're coming with certain histories and um, just trying to like slowly chip away and introduce something new to them. And I think some people have been receptive. So that's wonderful. Now here's another question. That's great that people are receptive and open and all the, you know, and that you're doing the work to get in there and I'm hearing a butt coming, change the dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a, butt. it's more of a, if you are someone in a marginalized body who's experienced medical trauma, and that might be something that you also want to explore with ketamine. um, Is it a safe place for them? You know, is this this place, especially like, I'd be curious to, and I'm going to have to go dig into the research myself, but like, find out what research they're doing on eating disorders. And is it a diverse population? And how is that looking? And how, so I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, I understand if we're, if they're in Philly, (laughs) right? Like, go to Jenny. But if you're not in Philadelphia, and you're experiencing this, and you also are in a marginalized body, would you say that this could be a safe place or maybe not yet? And that's okay if it's not yet. I'm just curious on your thoughts. That's a good question. Um, and, you know, I I hesitate to use the, the, like, I've sort of moved away personally from using the word safe space because, like, what does that even mean? And how can we ensure that for anyone? And I think ultimately um, we are sort of responsible for cultivating, like, uh, a sense of safety to like our inner sense of safety. And obviously there are external things that affect that and we can make choices. Um, but I would say broadly speaking, no, it, there is definitely still, you know, a, a lot of these people are old school medical providers, right? And so there's this idea that anorexia is a thing that extremely thin people experience. And there are um, certain assumptions made about people in larger bodies. Absolutely. And so you would really need to vet a provider, especially if they're saying that they work with eating disorders. Um, I would get even extra, you know, sort of cautious about that and, and curious about that and really have to feel out whether that's something you can work with and whether they can honor the language that you need and the goals that you're setting for yourself, for sure. Um but again, they might be more open to that than you'd expect. They might just not have the education around it. So depending on how, just how, like what capacity you have to advocate for yourself and 
how much education you feel like doing or not. It's totally a personal choice. It's not obviously not your responsibility, but if you feel up to it, it might be possible, but proceed with caution. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think one of the things that I was like kind of taking from that is going back to something that you said earlier about how this could be a really great experience to learning how to use your voice and to practicing using your voice. And not everybody is ready to do like that step, right? Or doesn't feel like they have the capacity to do it or the desire to do it, you know? Um but it is a really great place if you're trying to practice and you want to learn. That is really good to know that they might be more receptive than we think, but also proceed with caution and know that you might be met with some stuff and have to stay like, hey, that's not cool. Right. Like, that's, I'm not really down with that language. Can we, are you open to using this language instead? You know, I'm more than my physical body. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other stuff that are going into this. Can we talk about those things as well and not focus on that as much? And I think that's a really like honest response that you that you shared and I appreciate it for everybody who's listening it's a very honest response especially from someone who has historically worked with eating disorders for such a long time um so yeah thank you for the honesty of course and just you know one other thing that people with that history should be aware of is that typically there are some things that are part of the protocol around food leading up to the medicine. And I actually had a a provider, a colleague of ours email me this week, a client of hers is doing ketamine and was told to avoid processed foods um, leading up to the session. And personally, that's to me, not something that's, I don't offer that advice. I don't think that's necessary. You know, I think there's some precedent for that in plant medicine traditions, you know, there are sort of indigenous spiritual practices of preparing the body to receive medicine. And so there are maybe these really um, restricted sort of dietary practices. There are also, again, with other medicines, a few, very few, but there are a few sort of chemical interactions that you need to avoid. Um, So I think some of that has just been like carried over to the ketamine space, but In my opinion, you do not need to be changing the food you're eating before your session. If the idea is to bring like some sort of mindfulness and intentionality to the process, there are other ways that we can do that. Um, And then also typically you're told to not eat for a certain number of hours beforehand. And I've seen these crazy numbers of people saying like six hours fasted. I find that low blood sugar and hunger is much more likely to make someone nauseous on ketamine than not, you know, than um, eating something. So, you know, I'll encourage people to not have like their biggest brunch ever right before, but, uh, you know, in, again, this is my protocol and you need to talk to the provider you're working with, but I'll say, you know, especially once we know how someone feels on the medicine, like you can have a a snack two hours before um, so that you have a little something coming in. You're not super full, but your blood sugar is stable and bring something to eat right after because that is often helpful. So um, liquids, you do really want to limit because ketamine is a diuretic and you don't want to have to pee in the middle of it. But uh, so that would be another thing if you have that history to really find out what someone's protocol is with that and can they work with you to make sure that you feel safe going into it. And, you know, I think it's really about, again, preparing for the journey and this idea of starting, you know, that you don't just sort of rush from your daily life, like into the medicine experience, you know, that like you're really putting some effort and intentionality into it, but there are so many different ways you can do that. Like you could, especially, you know, even with food, you could say like no screens, you know, while you're eating, like really focus on like nourishing yourself and loving yourself with food or something like, and what would it be like to do that for 30 days leading into a medicine experience? Right. So. What would that be like going into your. And that's the point is that (laughs) it's not just the medicine. It's the whole, yeah, it's what we do to, you know, prepare ourselves for it and then integrate it. Like that's the medicine is the habits yeah. that it engenders. So 
And the thoughtfulness, right? And I feel like also too, and like the awareness that you're bringing into it, if you're putting that much thought and and awareness into going into the treatment, you can put in that same thoughtfulness and awareness into going about your day. Mm-hmm. And I think the treatment kind of facilitates an excuse to, <laughs> to kind of do that. And then it opens up your mind yeah. to make you be like, oh, this isn't like, I can do this more often, or I can make more space for this. Or some of these barriers that I have felt kind of stuck are a little bit looser. And like, as Dana used the term malleable. And I liked that because it is, it's like, oh, okay, I can maybe bend that that a little bit I can maybe do that and if I think also too like what we talked about earlier is a lot of times with eating disorders and disordered eating in general I could see how this could be beneficial for that alone Mm -hmm. that alone I could see being beneficial because you're setting up the tone of I'm going to take care of my home and my body is my home and I'm going to make space to do that and food is a facilitator of that ketamine is can be a facilitator of that therapy is a facilitator of that and I'm going to work on all those things to kind of together to take care of my home which is probably why you're called (laughs) (laughs) full circle yeah Uh, no, you're so right. So you're cool. so right. That's it. That's exactly it. It's the whole container around the medicine. Yeah. And and there are lots of different kinds of medicines. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes like it can feel a little intimidating and this might, you might be listening to this episode and be like, oh, snap. Like this is, this is intense. Like, I don't know. This isn't for me. But you might also be listening to it and be like, oh, snap. This sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing. But we can all take from today's discussion around the thoughtfulness and being able to open up our minds a little bit more to letting go of parts of ourselves that maybe aren't serving us long term and can we in some ways make those more malleable and create you know just more space for a little bit more yeah thank you jenny so much for coming on and sharing with us all about ketamine therapy and what you've been doing we're I just think it's really incredible and um, it just feels like you bring so much sacredness into the work that you're doing on so many levels. And um, yes, thank you. Is there anything else you want us to take away with today or anyone who's listening or any last thoughts? No, we covered so much and I, I really appreciate yeah, that you got that sort of sacredness of it because it is and yeah, people are hearing about it again as this sort of shiny new thing, which can bring either, I think, over enthusiasm or really intense skepticism. But this is slow, steady, powerful work, and um, it can be really beautiful. So thanks for letting me share about it because I really love talking about it. Hey, friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.